long today, I, I give you a quick recap of, I don't know if you remember, but last year we started off the year and our, our theme for 2023, some of you weren't here then, and so you'll hear kind of what we set out to do. We wanted to cure the terrible disease of loneliness in our community. We realized um, we kind of took it from a commencement address that Kurt Vonnegut gave in 1994, and he said this. He said he claimed that all people have spiritual needs, things which human beings by their nature can ill afford to live without. One of these needs is the desire for a stable community of like-minded individuals with whom to share life experiences. If people lack this type of community, they will contract the terrible disease of loneliness. And so we set out last year to, to really concentrate on building a community where people would not feel um, that loneliness anymore because it is a terrible thing to feel. And part of that meant that we, we dropped as many of the, pre, the pre-built barriers that seem to come along with religion uh, that prevent people from feeling like they're apart. So you got to think like us, believe like us, vote like us, love like us, look like us, talk like us, dress like us, drive what we drive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so we, we've, we've challenged ourselves and we'll continue to challenge ourselves as long as we possibly uh, can. Challenge ourselves to, to, not, to, to not be complacent, to realize that we have some inherent things that are projected by nature of the institution, right? That are projected on people, that demand that people... The minute most people hear church, they immediately feel like they are, they're, they're being asked to be something. And we want to just kind of begin to dismantle that. And so today I'm going to talk about kind of the next phase of that. And then I'll, I'll tell you what our, our, um, our theme is for this year. And you say, how did you come up with a theme? Did you get a group of 12 people together and vote on it? No, I just came up with it myself. Okay. Uh, but I, I, I believe that it is exactly what, what will be the next iteration, the next evolution of this idea of, of helping people no longer be lonely. And, and a lot of it has to do with those of you that, that, that have come here and that are now part of this community and how we can grow together. But, but we, we started last year with that, and then towards about two-thirds through the year, then we started a, a series on the ten ethics of harvest, which I think recently you told me you went through and listened to all of them. You get an A today, A++. And you get sitting next to Aaron, which is like an extra bonus, extra bonus, all right? Um, and, and those 10 ethics, I'm just going to read to you. I'm not going to expound on them. If you want to hear more about each one, I did an entire message on each one, 10 different messages. So those 10 ethics that begin to shape who we are and how we function here on the earth as a community Um, Number one, Jesus is a model for living more than an object for worship. Number two, affirming people's potential is more important than reminding them of their brokenness. Number three, the work of reconciliation should be valued over making judgments. Uh, Heresy. Number four, uh, gracious behavior is is more important than right belief. Number five, inviting questions is more valuable than supplying answers. Number six, encouraging the personal search is more important than group uniformity. Big one. Number seven, meeting actual needs is more important than maintaining institutions. And number eight, uh, peacemaking is more important than power. Number nine, we should care more about love and less about sex, everyone's personal favorite. And number 10, life in this world is more important than the afterlife. Now, some of those seemingly sound contrary to maybe what you've 
believed in the past, but I encourage you to go find those messages, listen to them. Hopefully it'll make sense when you hear it all, all broken out. So as I've been thinking and discussing, and Robin and I were discussing, what is the next thing for us? What do people as a community that are a part of this, how can we be better, a better community? How can we represent the ideals and the message and the heart of, of God here on the earth even better? Because I'll tell you this, Harvest, you're doing a great job. You should pat yourselves on the back. Come on. You're doing an incredible job. The feedback that I get from people that come here is, I just feel like like I can be myself or I'm home or I feel so comfortable. And, and that's amazing. You guys have done that. And, that's, and I, am, I am so excited. And so as we talked about what does this look like beyond that, one of the things that we began to discuss is one of the, the, the thing that might be holding people back from truly entering into community. Because how many of you know you can be in a crowd and still be lonely? Right? We've all been there. You can be in the midst of a thriving, healthy community, which I believe that we are, or at least are marching towards, and yet still feel a sense of loneliness. And I thought, what, what ultimately keeps people back from, from opening their heart up, taking the risk to then become a part of the community? What, what prevents us from being vulnerable? Vulnerability. What prevents us from truly letting people know who we are? Now, this doesn't mean we broadcast to every person that's here, you know, our entire life story. This isn't a let's confess our sins to one, one to another sermon. That's not where I'm going with this. I'm saying you know that you have a group of people. Uh, it could be two. It could be four. It could be six. That you let them know you. You're vulnerable enough to let them know who you are. And, and, I, and I realized that it's something that I've spoke twice on last year, so it must be important because it keeps coming up, and that is shame. Now, I'm going to give you my own definition of shame. You can look it up in the Webster's. You can see a million different things, but I'm going to give you my own definition of shame. I believe that shame is anything that we have either done or has been done to us or that we think about ourselves that make us believe that we need to hide. Hiding an aspect of who we are, hiding a part of our life, hiding a part of our past, hiding something that we go, you know, I wouldn't be okay if the closest, most trusted person in my life knew this about me. So I'm going to do everything I can to build protections and walls around this. And shame is a killer. I, I, I used this in a message this year, so um, don't think that I'm repeating myself, but it, it is so good that I'm going to use it again. But someone who has done a tremendous amount of speaking and writing and research on shame is Brene Brown. And she said this, she said, so very quickly, about six weeks into research, she ran into this unnamed thing that absolutely unraveled connection in a way that she didn't understand or had never seen. Connection being the point of this. Y'all, if we don't have connection as a church, this is pointless. You can get a message online. From home, in your PJs. 
And on a morning like this morning, where there's probably 10 couples that aren't here, that may be watching online, that when they saw the rain and the cold went, honey, let's stay in. And that's okay, that's fine. But the reason that that will never be this, it can suffice on a day where you're traveling or, you know, you got stuff going on, you're not feeling well, or you just don't feel like going out. It's, that's fine. But the reason it can never be this is because we need connection with one another. Desperately. But the number one connection killer is shame. And, and she said this, she said, so I, I, pulled, I pulled back out of research and thought, I need to figure out what this is, and it turned out to be shame. And shame is really easily understood as the fear of disconnection. Is there something about me that if other people know it or see it, that I won't be worthy of connection? She did a much better job than I did. The things I can tell you about it, this is what she said, is universal. We all have it. And one of the ways we deal with it is we numb vulnerability. But you cannot selectively numb things in your life. So when we numb vulnerability, we sometimes numb joy. We numb gratitude. We numb happiness. You can't selectively go in and say, I'm not going to feel this thing anymore. Sometimes the decision to not feel one thing is the decision to not feel anything. And then for some of us, and I have been guilty of this, we find different things. It could be activities, which activities are fine. It could be substances. It could be whatever that we're trying to either selectively numb things, realizing that we end up numbing everything, or we're trying to make us joyful or happy, and, and we realize that we're just fighting this battle of, of many of us in this room, and I'm guilty of it, folks. We take substances to get us up. And it could be just caffeine, and there's nothing wrong with that. But we take substances to get us up, and then when it's time, we take substances to get us down, and ultimately we're playing this game with our own energy and our emotions and our, and our, and our physiology and all of the stuff going on because... And, and I'm not saying there's a magic cure to it, but at the end of the day, really, if we got honest with ourselves, we're trying not to feel something. Or we're only wanting to feel it when it's appropriate to feel it, and we want to shut it down when it's time to shut it down. And so as I looked at this, I, I, and, and I've read you know tons of stuff about this together, there's two things that, that, that Brene learned um, in a year a year after she did this research. The first is vulnerability is not weakness and that myth is profoundly dangerous. She said, I've come to believe in my 12th year of doing this research that vulnerability is our most accurate measurement of courage. And take it from somebody whose vulnerability has been used against him time and time again. Because when you grow up in a religious family as a pastor's child, you are conditioned, not necessarily by your parents. My parents did an amazing job of, of they really did. They really, really did. They, they did an amazing job, I believe, of making room for each of us kids to be as kids. Um, we have a we have a family video that one day I will show you parts of, with or without my family's permission, and it goes back to when Aaron was probably 
five. I was seven or eight. Seven. Um, Jim would have been ten or eleven. John was three or four. Three. Matt was one or two. Yeah, somewhere in there. And if when you watch that vi- video, if, if 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 we could blur the faces and you could just hear the reactions and, and the voices and what they were saying, you would be able to pick out each one of the children if you knew my family. It's unbelievable. If we start with the youngest, Matt, he had my mom's silky. Okay? And he's got the silky, and he's sweet, and he's, you know, he's a little bit sassy, and he's got his mother's silky slip. We call it a silky. It's a slip. It's like her, you know, slip underneath the dress. We have John, who was doing ninja moves. Now, if you follow him on Instagram, to this day, he's in jiu-jitsu. And three-quarters of his posts are about his jiu-jitsu. He's doing ninja moves and telling Matt to be quiet. And when Matt is trying to get John to join him in front of the camera, John refuses to look at the camera, does not want to be filmed, and says his famous words of, I don't care. When mommy... John, Mom, uh, Jonathan, Mommy's trying to take a picture. I don't care. John. You have Aaron, who is so, so, um, you know, OCD. <laughs> that she is tying her shoe with like five or six, seven knots to make sure it does not come undone at school. Four. You've heard of double knot. Have you heard of triple knot, quadruple knot? And then sits down at the piano with another girl her age who is playing a song wrong and hips her out of the way to then adamantly show her how to play the song on the piano. This is the day. This is the day. This one, this idiot over here is going, this is the day. No, no, that's not how you do it. Let me show you. The executive always making sure, right? Then you have me who's standing in front of the camera singing a song. What? Peter and John went to pray. What is it? I don't remember it. Man on the way. They went leaping and something and praising God. Yeah, that song. Yeah. Silver and gold have I none. Yes. And then when Aaron sees her brother in front of the spotlight, she's also got to get her moment in the spotlight. So she starts singing, but every one of the boys is mocking her in it. And then, of course, I jump into the frame to get on in the frame with her. Because nobody's going to steal my frame. And Jim, God love him, is in a corner reading a book. And everyone could be that. To some degree. By the time Matt was, I think, 12, we were in New York City, and he was singing, I don't think you're ready for this jelly. My body's too bootylicious for you, babe. And I will point out, we did not know he was gay then. I don't know how, between the silky and the body's too bootylicious, we didn't know. We thought all 12-year-old boys do this. That was about the time that I had a theft ring going on, okay? So to to some degree, we were all allowed to semi-be ourselves. Um, 
But you know, we we somehow, somewhere along the way, are told that vulnerability and it's reinforced with punishment. There's many times that I've been too open, too vulnerable, too honest to myself. Many, many times. I have the exact opposite problem that most people have. I don't know who to be vulnerable around, so I'm just vulnerable around everyone. And that's not always the greatest thing. I have people, this, this is true, I have people in the community that every time I see them, they'll say to me, I just love that you are a pastor and you are yourself and you don't apologize for it. I just, man, I just think about you all the time. And in the back of my head, I'm saying, well, if I am so great at doing this, why have you never been to my church? And I realize it's because if the guy leading it is going to be that open and vulnerable, what am I going to have to do? Because church has become the exact opposite of what it was intended to be. Church was a place where you got away from the hierarchy of the Pharisees and religion. That's what the original intention of the church was. And they would come into houses where they were safe from the Roman government, where they were safe from the, you know, the, 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 the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes and the people that would judge. And they could come and they could openly discuss their journey of faith in a way that would not be judged, but that would be encouraged and and cultivated and they would do it and then they would share resources and they would be this beautiful community of people together. That was the original intention of the church. Fast forward to now, not everybody walks in and we got to make sure our kids look right. We got to make sure, you know, your daughter, I love her. Sometimes she, she does things that some people would see as interruption. I don't see it as an interruption. You know, sometimes Tommy gets loud. I'm pointing people out and he does things. And, and sometimes he does it in quiet moments. And there's sometimes where I think, I can say this because Tommy's my buddy. I think to myself, Tommy, why can't you do that when everyone's being loud and not in the middle of a quiet moment? Right? We can see these things and we can go, well, this seems out of place. You're darn right it's out of place. And that's the most beautiful part of it. Do you hear me together? People get to be themselves. So the, the 2024 theme for Harvest is we want the real you. We want the real you. We don't want the church you. We don't want the cleaned up you. We want the real you because until you can be the real you, then we can't grow together. If we all just come here and say, let's just do community, well, what does that mean? In the words of my friend Neil, who every time he hears me say something crazy, say something, he goes, that sounds really good, but what does it mean? I was like, do you understand, Neil, this is essentially what being a pastor is. You say things that sound good and nobody knows what they mean. And I'm good at my job, all right? So stop asking me what things mean. So when you're in a community, it's so great to say we're just building this community where everybody's just loved and accepted and blah, 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 blah. And that's awesome. And we're doing that and we're doing that. But it does not, you can almost use the idea of we're having this open, beautiful, honest, loving, inclusive community as an excuse to be less vulnerable. You can hide in here knowing that nobody's ultimately going to push you beyond what you're willing to give and give up for who you are. But we only are as good as we are in vulnerability with one another. And vulnerability, according to Brene Brown, she says, when are you going to use scriptures, Dan? You've talked about Brene Brown. I'll get there and then we'll close this, okay? She says that vulnerability is the birthplace of creativity, innovation, and one other really cool thing that I can't remember off the top of my head, but I've written down. It is where innovation and creativity are born when somebody goes, 
I'm going to take a risk right now and see if I can make this thing better or create something nobody's ever seen before. So without vulnerability, we don't have innovative ideas. We don't have creativity. We don't have the things that keep our, our world spinning. It takes vulnerability. And vulnerability is, is not what the church cultivates an environment. I mean, the church does not cultivate an environment where vulnerability is A, easy, and be rewarded at all, right? I mean, years ago, when we were kids, maybe people still do this, and if they do, it is so weird, but we used to have prayer meetings, or we'd have prayer groups, and there would always be that one weird kid who you knew had some weird, what we would see as weird back then, now we'd probably think it was normal, some weird stuff going on in their life that now looking back was probably perfectly normal. And that kid in a small group of people that were supposed to be his community would feel the need to say, I have an unspoken prayer request. Now, for those of you who don't know what unspoken prayer requests are, um, it's probably one of three things. And I'm not going to go through them. And there was this idea that if something is too, is too outside of the religious norm, don't even let it come out of your mouth. So you're telling me that a place that I'm supposed to be able to come and struggle my way through life, that now the appropriate thing to do is for me to make sure that nobody actually knows what I'm struggling with, so then I get to struggle with it on my own. And then when your kid's growing up, it's like you're in the circle and someone's like, oh, I have an unspoken prayer request. And then, you know, you'd be the one that prayed for the unspoken. I pray for, you know, I pray for Jim's, we'll use Jim, Jim's unspoken. And meanwhile, inside, I'm like, yeah, you've probably got more than one unspoken over there. <laughs> of course, he's got the unspoken. But when we say things to people that do things that are not okay, when we say shame on you, we say you ought to be ashamed of yourself. When shame has become the number one motivator, shame and fear, to get people to stay in a church, to get up in the morning when it's cold and rainy to come to church, we, we have created an environment where vulnerability is punished and shame is, wins the day. And you don't just... If you've had a religious experience like that, you don't just come to this church and you're here for a year and that goes away. This stuff is so ingrained in us. We all are dealing with it and layers of it, trying to shed it. Let me um, tell you a couple quick stories and then we'll get out of here. Hebrews 12, 2, we can put that up there. It says this, it says, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, despising the shame. I love this translation of it. I'm going to read it in a different translation. Looking, look away from the shadow dispensation of the law and the prophets and fix your eyes upon Jesus. He is the fountainhead and conclusion of faith. He saw the joy of mankind's salvation when he braved the cross and despised the shame of it. At, I love this. As the executive authority of God, 
seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He now occupies the highest seat of dominion to endorse mankind's innocence, having accomplished purification of sins and despising shame. He sat down. I love that. I want you to picture that with me. Taking all of the shame of, of the world, despising it on his shoulders, making a sacrifice that would purify and take care of the sins of the world, past, present, and future. When he saw that it was done and good, he sat down. In other, way, in other words, the work is done. I'm done. I've done what I've come to do as the executive authority of our creator. Let me read another story, or another scripture. Well, there's stories too. Romans 8.1, Therefore, there is, many of you know, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, The story of the woman at the well. Um, You know, uh, last couple of weeks I've told, said, you all know the story of, and I realize that probably 30% of you in the room don't know those stories. And once again, there's no shame in that. So I'm not going to skip over these stories. I'll give you the quick version of it. Uh, maybe more of you, but the woman at the well, um, Jesus approaches this woman. Um, she's a Samaritan. He's a Jew, has a conversation with her, which we're going to read a little bit of here. And of course, when he leaves that conversation, the disciples are like, why are you talking to that woman? She's a Samaritan. She's a woman. You know, like what's going on here? And 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 Jesus sets them straight. Um, but but verse ten of this chapter, and I didn't give that to you. But that's okay because I'm reading it from something else. It says Jesus was not at all intimidated or embarrassed by her political stance. And let me set this up for you. Um, this story is about the the convergence of um, opposing political and religious views. So the Jews and the Samaritans, I mean, you don't even get two more opposite. I don't know if you can even parallel that. Maybe what's happening over in Israel right now. Um, When you talk about like, you know, like Rashid Tlaib on the left and Charlie Kirk on the right, as far apart as they are, it's further than that. Like, these are very diametrically opposed political and religious um, views, stances, cultures. So they meet at this well, okay? Now I want you to hear this because I'm picking it up in verse 10, but it says, he didn't allow his awareness of his weariness and, and desperate thirst, as well as an obvious opportunity to negotiate for a quick fix drink to distract from his person and mission. Instead of associating himself with the Jews as a mere Jew and endorsing the Samaritans' inferior political identity, he immediately engaged her with a far superior conversation. He escaped the temptation to see himself or the lady reduced to a lesser identity. He knew who he was and what his mission was all about as the Messiah of mankind. By seeing himself, he was able to see her in the same light. What he had to offer was not for sale. So he looked her in the eye and said, if you could see the generosity of God's grace gift, you would perceive who I am. I am so much more than a Jewish man, and you are so much more than a Samaritan woman. So here I am asking you for a drink. 
when you should be asking me, and I would give you the water of life for free. Now listen to this in verse 13. Jesus answered her and says, well, this well cannot quench the thirst that I'm talking about. Anyone drinking from it will thirst again. In her encounter with Jesus, her familiar religious and historic identity is dramatically challenged. Everyone who drinks from the wells of religion and politics will thirst again. The business of religion desperately needs paying and returning customers. They crucified Jesus for this reason. Their entire system of keeping people dependent on their hierarchy was challenged and condemned in this moment. It's why even his own disciples said, how dare you speak to that woman? Because they saw the hierarchy that kept the religious system in business that they grew up in, many of them, not all of them, many of them, crumbling to the ground as he crossed the line to speak to an inferior Samaritan woman. Samaritan inferior, woman inferior. And, and there's so many examples of this where we see Jesus breaking down the very structures that allow shame to remain. I don't have enough time to go through all of this, so I'm going to try to speed it up here and end. Listen to me. When we're obsessed with labels and identifying people, we create an environment where shame thrives. Because what we're telling them is, you have to be like everyone else who is this. It doesn't give them room to be vulnerable and be themselves. Do you hear me? There are stories and people in this room that you would have no idea. I mean, they, they have vastly different things from what you'd assume that they, based on just their job or where they grew up or who their parents were, they've, they're completely different from what you would guess. That only happens when you're in an environment where you can be vulnerable and be allowed to be yourself. Shame kills us every time. Do you know that David himself, listen to this. I know I'm a little bit all over the place, but track with me if you can David tried to hide his shame, and it ended up in murder. And yet we still somehow think we're going to get the shame combination right. And it's not going to end in disaster. It always ends in disaster. So, so Jesus comes, and he's like, wait, you guys have seen this end in disaster over and over and over again. And yet, when I refuse to play the game of the hierarchy and the labels and the demanding that people be something rather than be themselves. You will crucify me for it. Why? Church, you got to hear this. Why? Why do we hold so fast? Why do we, why do we hold on to so desperately these things that we know ultimately create an environment full of shame? Robin said something so great to me uh, yesterday. She said, church for so long has always been about we need you to be something and never about we need you to be you. It's why this year, 2024, is we want the real you. We don't want you to be something. We want you to be you. You say, well, if you just let everybody be themselves, God knows what they're going to do. Well, who they were originally created and designed to be, if they get in touch with that, we're going to be just fine. Come on. So you look around the room here. There's a lot of different folks 
different people, folks. That's an old term. I'm getting old. There's this. There's wearing their dungarees and going down to the corner store for a pop. Um, but there's a lot of different people here. You said I don't. I can't quite. Can't kind of quite put my finger on what harvest is. Don't try. You know why? Because if you can put your finger on what harvest is, then we can put our finger on who you are. And we don't want to do that. We want you to be you. I don't want you to be a, a mini Pastor Dan. God help you. Don't try to do that. I don't want you to, to, to be anything or anybody else. And when you look at this stage today, represented on our stage, nobody's trying to be anybody but themselves. That's the requirement. You've got to have a little talent. You've got to be yourself. That's it. Be yourself. You know why? Because, and I said this to Robin, she said, you don't know that for a fact. And I said, yeah, but I feel it very strongly. So I'm going to present it, present it that way. And Brene Brown agrees with me, for heaven's sake. So, I mean, that's basically <laughs> second coming, right? So, um, vulnerability is the ultimate shame killer. And here's the thing I believe wholeheartedly. We are more comfortable hiding in shame than we are being vulnerable. Even when we know shame is killing us. And vulnerability, I mean, you guys have to just give me a break here. It's funny because I had a big, long conversation we did about this. So he's probably thinking I'm preaching to him, but I'm not uh, at all. As a matter of fact, at all. Um, This is kind of what I wanted to set for this year. Uh, Vulnerability is not you just, you know, I am who I am and you just all got to deal with it. That's not what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with like you have at least a close group of people that you know at the end of the day, you can be you. Maybe that group grows. You're free to be you. And I would hope that you can at least get darn close to being you here, if not fully. And the one thing that we don't tolerate here, hands down, is anybody telling somebody else here that they can't be themselves. Unless that person is somehow harming another individual. But then I would challenge that's not actually you because God didn't create us to harm one another. We want people to be themselves. One more thing. Is that okay? This is going to close it down. All right. I see if I can finish in four minutes. It's the story of the woman that touched the hem of Jesus' garment. And if you don't know this, there's a woman with an issue of blood. We don't know what that was, but it was some sort of disease of her blood. And within her blood... And we, we believe there's some sort of hemorrhaging going on. There's a lot of different versions of this. We're not quite sure what it is. But she makes her way through a crowd, and she has enough. She believes, based on what she's heard about this guy, that if she touches the hem of his garment, which is a fancy word of just this, that she's going to be healed. So she makes her way through a crowd. And in Luke, we have this on the screen, Luke 8, 46. It says, Jesus said, someone touched my garment or me for I perceive that the power has gone out from me and then the woman saw that she was not hidden she came trembling and falling down before him declaring in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed and he said to her daughter your faith has made you well go in peace I I have broken this down a million different ways Um, what did her faith look like in this moment 
Her faith for me looked like I'm going to go out into a crowd of people with a disease that culturally at the time made you unclean. Which means I am going to take the risk of being vulnerable, of being the unclean one in a crowd of people who are not unclean, or at least act like they're not unclean. And I'm going to touch the hem of his garment, and it is so essential that this scripture says, and when she realized she was no longer hidden. So she had the faith, had a conversation with somebody to start service today who's here for the first time and looks like they are scared to death to be here and told me they're pretty, pretty freaked out. That's the kind of faith that gets you healed. That there's something about that that moves God's heart when we go, you know, I don't know what people are going to think of me here. And we go anyways. I mean, so many of you have shown me what this looks like over and over again to crazy degrees where you go, you know, I'm ready to no longer have my, what, what I've been told by culture or the church, my unclean parts of me. I'm no longer willing to hide them in secrecy. I'm willing to just go and to just be vulnerable and to say, hey, it says she shared with the crowd why she came. When we do Storyteller Sunday, which we will resume in February, a lot of those, a lot of the times I've been sitting there going, well, we're going to go there, aren't we? Okay. Because I don't control what the people say. I don't say, let's stay away from that topic. I say, what do you want to share? And it's their consent that guides me through what we share. And sometimes what they want to share is not necessarily what I would want them to share. Because I still have that built-in mechanism that goes, this is going to push people too far. But what's great about that is I have made myself accountable to the people around me and to the people that are going to be up there during Storyteller Sunday that I'm not going to control what you say. I want you to share what you want to share about your life story. And sometimes those aren't the prettiest details. But they are deeply spiritual and deeply rewarded by God because when the quote-unquote unclean things, which all of us have, are no longer hidden, a.k.a. vulnerability, shame dies and creativity and innovation and community is born. Right? So 2024 for Harvest is the year that we want you to be the real you. And if the real you is too much, oh well. We got some too muches here. I occasionally get an email about people that are being too much. Like, does that lady have to do that during service? It's very distracting. Deal with it. You don't know their story. If you knew their story, you'd be like, oh my gosh, they're in church and they're worshiping or they're experiencing God. They're here. And if I had been through what they'd been through, I probably would never return back to church. I'd probably be hiding in my house, depressed in a mental institution or dead. You don't know their story. So we want you to be the real you. And if you get too much of the real you, as long as you're not hurting somebody else or making me look bad, which is key, be you. 
could bring it down a notch or two, okay? <laughs> Let's stand our feet and pray together. I could talk about this for an hour more. It just could. God bless you. We'll see you soon.